you know, just on the side of the street. And her cousin was translating, like telling me her story. And just something about her was just so, it's, it's the saddest little girl I've ever seen. Hey everyone, Peter here, and it's so good to be back on the Assyrian Podcast to bring you this week's episode with Susie. Some of you out there may have heard of Thomas Keller. He's the creative culinary force behind the French Laundry, Per Se, and Bouchon. Keller was interviewed for a piece on culinary schools published in Lucky Peach and had an interesting take on passion and desire. And I quote, It's not about passion. Passion is something we tend to overemphasize that we certainly place too much importance on. Passion ebbs and flows. To me, it's about desire. If you have a constant, unwavering desire to be a cook, then you'll be a great cook. If it's only about passion, sometimes you'll be good and sometimes you won't. You've got to come in every day with a strong desire. With passion, if you see the first asparagus of the springtime and you become passionate about it, so much the better. But three weeks later, when you've seen that asparagus every day now, passions have subsided. What's going to make you treat the asparagus the same? It's the desire. I love seeing people's faces light up when they talk about what drives them, their desires, and better yet, their purpose. Recently on a radio show, I heard that two of the happiest days of a person's life are when they're born and when they understand their true purpose in life. In my conversation with Susie, I hope you can follow the journey to her desire in life. That desire led her back to the land between two rivers, Beth Mahran. Susie has been annually traveling to Iraq since 2008. Expanding on her professional skill set and humanitarian work in the Middle East, she moved to Erbil, Iraq in early 2019. She is currently the program director for Access Aid Foundation in Iraq and directly implements projects in Ninua for the Assyrian and Yazidis to assist them in reintegrating back into their communities. Prior to that, as you'll hear in the interview, she was working at Heartland Alliance in a similar capacity. In 2012, she co-founded Gishru, a 501c3 organization that coordinates educational and cross-cultural trips to northern Iraq and southern Turkey for American and other international youth. For our listeners from the United States, here's a quick word about the 2020 census. Every 10 years, the United States completes a census nationwide to essentially get a count of everyone who lives in the country. These counts are important because they give the government a sense of the demographic makeup of the nation. Various organizations have unified in an effort to ensure that every Assyrian in the United States is counted in the 2020 census. Here's how you can make sure you are counted as an Assyrian. Under the race section, check other and write out Assyrian in the space provided. For more information regarding the 2020 census, please go to www.2020census.gov. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, let's listen to Susie. 
Susie, I'd like to welcome you to the Assyrian podcast. Personally, it's a pleasure for me to interview you. Not only do I consider you a friend, but I also consider you a colleague, someone that I can, you know, lean on in terms of Assyrianism, activism, but it's a pleasure to have you on the Assyrian podcast. Thank you, Peter. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks to you and the Assyrian podcast and all the listeners and the supporters of the podcast. I'm excited to be here, to be sitting with you, um, talking about me, which sounds very weird. I don't like to talk about me, but thank you. In one sentence, who is Susan Yonan? I am a daughter, a friend, an advocate that comes from a place of fear, not really anything else. What do you mean by coming from a place of fear? Um, other advocates and activists I've met or have worked with, you know, come from a place of hope, which is good. But the thing that really keeps me going when it comes to raising awareness about the Assyrian cause and for our nation is, um, and I have to be in this state of mind all the time, is a place of fear for our people and uh, for the state of our nation. So that's what sort of drives me is, is the fear that I have for the Assyrian cause. Tell me about your upbringing. My parents and my two older sisters left Basra in the early 80s. My mom was pregnant with me at the time. Basra. Basra, Iraq, yes. They were raised in Baghdad, but, but had moved to Basra, and my sisters were both born there. Uh, they left in the early 80s when you know Saddam Hussein started coming into power. Went to Greece. I was born in Greece. From there, one years old, we moved to Canada, Calgary, Alberta. Um, and around the age of eight years old, we ended up coming to California. And the reason we ended up coming to California as my dad noticed because in Calgary there was not a lot of Assyrians and he noticed you know we were growing up and not really speaking our language and there was really Assyrianism you know didn't exist at that time so he made the decision to move us to California closer to our relatives closer to the Assyrian community here I've been here in California ever since how was the move for you moving from Calgary to Modesto California yes I was really young so it really didn't affect me I know my sisters, it was difficult for them. They were older, like early teenage years. Uh, so they came from, they were in high school at the time and I think came straight to high school here. So I think it was, it was more difficult for them. But for me, no, it was a really easy transition. I was eight, it was just a new adventure at the time. How was it for you growing up in Modesto during the, the 80s, the 90s? It was interesting. I mean, I grew up with a lot of Assyrians, which was sort of different the way my sisters grew up. Um, and I grew up in a very nationalistic household. My parents, my father was always part of the ADM, Assyrian Democratic Movement, Zoa. My mom uh, was always involved with Assyrian Aid Society. And at that time in the 80s, I remember in the early 90s, it was a lot more pure, the movement and nationalism. There wasn't as much division as there is now. So I remember sort of those times. Those were like, I think, the good times, the easier times to be Assyrian or be an activist or work for the cause. Unfortunately, you would think it would be easier now, but unfortunately it's... It's a lot more tough. So you found, so your parents would probably take you along to political rallies. Absolutely, yeah, all the meetings. time, yeah. And at meetings, um, get-togethers. I remember at that time, my mom and the other members of Assyrian Society, this is obviously before the internet, before PayPal, before all that stuff, they would literally go door to door, knocking on doors, like collecting money from people for Assyrian Society. They'd have their little bucket with the picture yeah. and just go knocking door to door. And it was just, I don't know, a more simple, pure way of of, of activism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you've set, you've set a, a foundation for us <laughs> that you grew up in a very nationalistic, patriotic, mm -hmm. Assyrian patriotic household. 
But what really makes you uh, an umtaneta? What makes you a patriot? I don't really consider myself... I, the word umtaneta, I think we're all umtanaya in our own way. How so? Just by knowing our culture, uh, knowing our history, knowing the cause, advocating. When it comes to activism, I, I get a little embarrassed when people say, oh, Susan Yonan, the activist. For me, it's something very natural. It's not work. You know, people get tired of work. They get exhausted. For me... It's like breathing. I don't know anything else but this. It's like muscle memory, something that... You yeah, just... it's just very natural. It's not, you know, um, I'm always striving to do more as well. Do you think it's a calling for you? Absolutely. You know, before I went to Iraq, I was always homesick of a place I did not know. And it was a very weird feeling. I was homesick from a home I never knew. When you talk about homesick, is this... Do you think your parents played a factor in this homesickness where they would show you photos mm -hmm. or recall events and certain memories that happened in the homeland, their upbringing? Do you think that yeah. contributed to your homesickness? I, absolutely. I think it was that and their homesickness as well. You know, they left uh, the country that they've only known, their family, their friends to unknown territory. They did not speak the language. Their education at the time didn't matter to the place that they moved. My dad was a very successful oil engineer in Basra. My mom was a history professor in Basra in the university. And taking that leap and leaving all of that and your family and friends, and a lot of their family unfortunately passed away. Um, in the 30 plus years, my parents have never returned to Iraq and I don't believe that they ever will. They say Iraq now, what it was back then, it's something they can't, they can't see. I, I've never appreciated, actually, this sounds bad, but I have always appreciated what my parents have done for my sisters and I, but I didn't really realize the sacrifice and how different the worlds are until I went to Iraq and saw it myself. And in a million years right now, if I was married with a family, there's no way I could move to a foreign country and start all over. I would be too scared. So um, I thank them for that. Not only them, the thousands of Assyrian parents who have done that for a better life, not for themselves. They had a great life there um, when it comes to careers and whatnot. But for us, you know, they knew that we sort of did not have a future there at that time. When did you first return to Iraq? My first year was 2008. What made you go? In 2007, there was a colleague of mine named Velma. She had gone with ADM here because, you know, ADM Zawa does a big parade, a mazalta there every year for Khabnisin. So she had gone with her aunt and some other ADM members. And I remember when she came back, I sat down with her in her garage and I was like, tell me everything, show me the pictures. We made a decision in 2008 to go. I really can't, you know, people always ask me, not, not even that time, until this day, people ask me to describe how it is. There really are no words for the feeling, especially the first year, as you know, it's just, it's something unbelievable. It's something you just, the second you land, you you feel you're at home. So as a, as a first timer, someone going to Iraq, it's a whole new feeling. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's an emotion you really can't describe. And then obviously there's the other emotions. You have the anger, you know, you have the sadness, you have this extreme pride. It's such a mixed, there's so many emotions you feel during the trip and, and visiting. When we were leaving, you know, my friends there, who were part of Khuyad Yalupe, the student movement, said, you know what, um, promise us you'll come back next year and promise us you'll bring us more people. So you know? Khuyad, Khuyad Yalupe, this yeah. is, expand on them, who they are? They are the student, um, the Syrian Chaldean student youth movement in Iraq. Okay. They have chapters all over the country. And that year they were our main like caretakers. So they did our logistics, took us around and whatnot. And I remember when we left, they said, please come back and bring more people. So... When I came back, I had people that were interested, my other friends. So we sat down in 2009, you know, the group doubled. And then it just expanded every single year after that. And I've been back every single year since 2008. 
So I, you're coming back, you come back home, you come back to America, mm-hmm. to Modesto, California. What is it that you're, you're doing in Modesto at this time? At that time, I had, I had become a member of ADM, Zolan. Not only that, I was very active with the youth here. And then we, you know, throughout the years, giving speeches and whatnot and advocating, uh, working for causes for Assyrian Society. In 2012, that's when we founded and began Gishru, um, the official organization, uh, the birthright trip for the motherland. So for many years, you, you were going to Iraq, but yes. why, why start Gishru? So because it, the trip was expanding so much and there's participants now coming and I was the only one doing it at that time. You know, back then I was calling it Destination Assyria. So luckily I had good friends who went on the trip, um, specifically Joe Denavi, Renya Benyamin and Natalie Babella approached me and said, you know what, Susie, we see the trip is getting to a point where one person can't handle it. So we sat down, we had an official meeting and then that's sort of how Gishu was born to you know, sort of fine-tune the trip, have an actual schedule, an itinerary, do proper marketing, picking specific projects that, that we do now every single year. So it just got to the level I just, I couldn't do it alone. So luckily, we created Gishru in 2012. What was your everyday life here in, in Modesto, your 9 to 5? My 9 to 5, I was actually working as economic development for the Stanislaus County. Okay. Um, I hated the job. <laughs> I did it for 10 years. You hated it after coming back from Iraq? Yeah, I hated it after. After, yeah. Because it's really interesting. People think Iraq, and it is, you know, a war-torn country. Um, There is is a lot of obstacles for our people, obviously. Oppression. But something, there's a unique uh, freedom out there, Mm -hmm. which sounds ironic. Yeah. But I believe that the people there are somewhat more free than we are. Where do you most feel at home? I'm torn. So I feel home, obviously, sitting next to my mom and my dad and, you know, my sisters. But I feel at home there. So if I can mesh both worlds, that would be my ideal place. But obviously, I can't. I remember back in 2014, and at that time, I was living in Sacramento. But on the weekends, I would come back home to Modesto. And I remember you telling me that you were going to go back home. But this time, the severity of the issue of the cause of the topic needed you there in Iraq. ISIS Mm -hmm. had come to the surface in 2014. What made you go back? As we discussed before, you know, since 2008, I was running a trip and a program going for Khapnisin, celebrating Akitu, celebrating joy with our people. And in 2014, you know, when ISIS took over Mosul, Nineveh, it was such a blow, obviously, to our community. Myself, uh, Sargun Saadi, and my colleague at the time, Sargun Ruel Sunny from Los Angeles, you know, we made a decision, you know what, not only in times of joy we need to be with our people, we really need to be there to support them at this very devastating moment. And we realized at that time, you know, there wasn't a lot of media attention of what was really going on, the displacement that, was, that had happened, our artifacts that were being destroyed. No one was really reporting it. You know, we got together and it was a very last minute decision. And we said, you know what, let's go. We had fundraised and uh, luckily to our community, uh, thankfully to our Syrian community, we raised a good amount of funds. And we also decided to document the trip. Where were you getting your news from on the ground? Uh, from my friends and, you know, that I've made throughout the years there. So, Chuya de Lupe, ADM, we were constantly communicating. Assyrian Aid Society at that time had taken in thousands of families, literally everywhere. Everywhere you looked at, there was a family living there. So it was churches, uh, the Syrian Aid Society, dormitories outside, makeshift tents, abandoned parking garages, 
it's one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. I was not expecting to see that. I don't think any of us were. But the level of de- devastation was unbelievable. So and I'll, I'll never forget that. You're flying into Iraq. Where do you fly into? And how, uh, do you, how do you get to where you need to go, especially with ISIS and the country in yeah. turmoil? Yeah, we flew into Erbil, Erbil International Airport in the north. And we were picked up by ADM. Uh, we were taken to Duhuk, which is two hours away. And even I'll never forget that drive from Erbil to Duhuk. Everywhere you look to the left and the right of the freeway, there's people scattered everywhere. And that's when we knew, like, wow, this is going to be... Uh, it's going to be hard. People scattered everywhere in terms of they were homeless, displaced, yes, or they dis- were trying to leave? Uh, displaced. Okay. Makeshift tents. So literally they just had sticks and like a paracha, you know, a piece of cloth, and they were just living there. Or these abandoned um, buildings, you could see them on every level. It was unbelievable. And at that time, I'm like, how are these people, like, what, how is aid reaching them? How are they, you know, they literally fled with the clothes on their back. Like and they had nothing, nothing. These aren't just Assyrians. No, absolutely not. Um, it was, and that time, the areas that we were in, it was Assyrians and uh, majority Yazidis that had fled Sinjar. So you drive into Duhuk, mm-hmm. also known as Nuhadra. Mm-hmm. What do you do from there? What is your mission? What is your goal? So our first mission is um, we wanted to visit the IDP camps, camps inter- internally displaced people. And at that time, um, they didn't have caravans. So a lot of them, like I said, had tents. Mm-hmm. We're living in abandoned buildings. It just, it really blows my mind the amount of work that our people did for the people that ran. Uh, if this was to happen to us, if all of a sudden 60,000 people showed up in Manesto overnight, what would we do? The way that our people mobilized there and the way they documented everything, made sure they got food together, clothes, shelter, it was unbelievable. I, I don't think that would be, anyone would be able to do that. Yeah. And a very special thank you, obviously, to Assyrian Society. What they did, unbelievable. I mean, the way they took care of these people and even the people that ran from Mosul and, and Sinjar, we were interviewing them and they said, they're like, we, if this happened in Mosul, if we had 60,000 people come from Nuhadra, like we would not be able to do this. Yeah. You know, it was just a level of, of displacement and an organized chaos. And so they were taking people in or organizing for them. Yes. Yeah. With, without regard to race, religion. Absolutely. No, no. It was everybody. So uh, even us, when we went, you know, we gave money and food and clothing and whatnot, medicine, uh, majority to Syrian people. But we also helped out a lot of... Yazidi people, you know, Yazidis really got the brunt of ISIS and are still dealing with it, just like our people. There's still about 7,000 Yazidi girls missing, unfortunately. So yeah, of course, when, when you see that, and not only Yazidis, um, you know, we have a lot of Arab brothers and sisters there that are neighbors of ours that were also displaced. Yeah, That's one thing when it comes to humanitarian work or, you know, being in a, a situation of complete devastation, I'm not going to look at a Christian and a Yazidi and a Muslim person and owe them to Pawit and make a difference between them. Absolutely not. Yeah. But we were there specifically to raise the plight and the and what was going on with our people and, and the Yazidi. So that, that was our main focus. Where do you dig down or how do you... You're, you're in Nuhadar, you're in northern Iraq and you're meeting with folks that have been displaced mm-hmm. and their lives are upside down. Where do you find it within you to connect with that person? How do you connect? I couldn't connect. I really? couldn't, absolutely not. I could not connect to that level of devastation because it's something I cannot relate to. I can have empathy and be sympathetic and be supportive. Mm-hmm. However, there's no way to uh, really connect with a woman who I'm interviewing who has her four-month-old baby in her lap and is now living in a hall with 30 other families 
She does not know where her husband is. One of her kids has died from dehydration. I can't connect with that. All I can do is listen to her story and have it heard somewhere. So you document it. Mm -hmm. Is this, is this a, an interview that you documented or a documentary? What was the... the... Thank you to the brilliant Sergun Saidi, um, an amazing cinematographer. Uh, he captured, he truly captured what was going on there. So what we did is um, he filmed. Uh, I was behind the camera, you know, asking the questions or one or two questions. And, and they were so full of emotion that it was just one question I was asking them. They were spilling over with emotions and, whatnot, and rightfully so. So we created a 10-minute uh, short documentary called The Last Plight. Luckily, you know, we didn't think it was going to go viral, which it did. It won numerous awards, and we were grateful that it won awards, not for self-recognition, obviously, because finally their voices are reaching and people are realizing, oh my God, look what's going on, and, and look at this level of, of, yeah, devastation. I mean, that's the only word really to have for, for what we're witnessing so your name is attached to this documentary. Your colleagues' names are attached to yes. it. it. It goes viral. Mm -hmm. Who is contacting you stateside to hear about the plight? So besides like local media outlets, um, it was screened at the European Parliament. It was screened at the United Nations. It's been screened at several NGO and, and conferences. So it really did, and it still is being shown. I mean, Sagan Sadi recently was in Canada and, and showed the film again. And, and it's sad that five years later, five years later, we still have IDPs. We still have people that are displaced. We still have people that have not been compensated. We still have people that, you know, their voices aren't reaching over. And, and a very interesting quote, my friend Rain Hanna, who recently testified in front of the Congress, you know, she said in a, her whole speech was amazing. But there's one line that she specifically said that really hit home with me. And she said, you know, as Assyrians, we're not, we keep on being referred to as voiceless. She's like, we're not voiceless. It's just no one's listening to us. And that's such a <clears throat> powerful statement because it's so true. We're advocating left and right. We're protesting left and right. We're writing articles. We're making documentaries. We're in Congress. We're petitioning, whatever. But I just don't know when people will begin listening. And I don't mean our people. We all know what's going on, the international community, which should be very concerned about what's going on in Iraq and Syria. They should be very concerned what's going on with our people. Why should they be concerned? Because, how do I say this? With, not, to not sound a... I believe that um, because we're the indigenous people, we care a lot for our country and our land, that we're, we're the only sense of moderation, I believe, in, in the Middle East. So they should be very invested into us because mm -hmm. um, we believe in women's rights, children's rights, yeah. education, and we believe in building up that country, uh, Iraq and Syria. So, uh, we as in Assyrians. Yes. When I went to Iraq for the first time as a part of Gishru in 2018, what you say about the indigenous people of Iraq caring about it and being the sense of neutrality there is true. Mm -hmm. I can totally attest to that. Absolutely. Because I... And, and you didn't tell me that before, mm -hmm. or no one else told me that before. Maybe we, I heard it from my grandparents, but when I went there and saw from my own eyes, and you feel the energy, you feel talking to the people, mm -hmm. that just justifies what you've said and what other people have said mm -hmm. you know, post, post my first trip there. Yeah. What were some of the most impressive moments during the filming of... The most impressive moments of, during our filming of The Last Plight um, was the resilience. I mean, it was 
unbelievable to see such catastrophic and hear such devastating stories. I keep on using that word devastating. Um, but, you know, a lot of them are saying, you know, but we want to go back. You know, we want to go back to our homes. Uh, you know, we want to live how we were living before. A lot of them, unfortunately, did, did leave the country, but a lot of them stayed. And I see them now. And they said, you know, they've gone back to their you know, their home neighborhoods. And uh, yeah, resilience was one of the most, uh, was the most hopeful mm-hmm. for me because they didn't have to stay in Iraq. There was a lot of opportunity for them to leave, but they stayed. And I think that was the most amazing thing that I saw under those, under those circumstances. It was, yeah, unbelievable that their resilience was mm-hmm. at such a level. How difficult is it for our people in the homeland to leave the country? It's not difficult, actually. There's a lot of countries that are opening their doors, and there's a lot of people that, yeah, want to leave, and maybe rightfully so that they should, because the circumstances that they're in um, are unfortunate, and some of them don't have hope. Um, However, there's a lot that do want to stay, but they need to be living in a more understanding and equal environment. They need to be treated as citizens of of the country, not second class or a minority. And I really hate that word minority. Why? I really want to change that narrative. Because I think it's, it's purposely, it's used to make us sound very small. And number-wise, yes, we're small. That's something we have to come to reality with. We're 250, 300,000, I want to say, in Iraq right now. However, we, uh, I really want to change that word to indigenous. Do you think it gives us more leverage? Absolutely. But it'll, it's, it's hard, you know, living under, for example, the KRG, the Kurdish Regional Government, if we don't push it, I mean, they're obviously not going to volunteer that the word. The word indigenous. Yes. Because with, with the word indigenous comes rights and claims to your land and your property and your homes and equal education, equal careers, job opportunities, and that's something they're not ready to do. So you come back in 2014 after ISIS has began committing atrocities all over, mm-hmm. mostly northern Iraq. How do you recharge after a trip like that? How does Susie recharge in general? Um, after that trip, you know, I had a lot of faith in our community because when ISIS, you know, came into Mosul and to Nineveh, it was the first time that I had witnessed and being involved in the community and advocating and whatnot. It was the first time I had seen our community come together. And it was such a beautiful moment and come, come together in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. So not only was I working here in... United States, you know, also uh, Germany, Australia, Canada, you know, other countries were all sort of like gathering to protest or to really raise, you know, um, advocate for what was going on. And at that moment, I was like, oh, my God, finally, it has happened. Finally, our nation is unified, regardless of what church, regardless of what political party you belong to, regardless of whatever. And I was like, okay, this is it. So it was sort of... um, double edge for me. I'm like, okay, wow, we're finally unified. However, it's so unfortunate it takes something like ISIS to unify our nation. You know what I mean? And I think that's a problem we have. Um, We're very retroactive. We wait for devastation to happen, and then we start advocating and and uniting. And I'll never forget, you know, all the meetings and the conferences and um, planning, and we had all the protests, the global protests which was amazing, and, and the people in Iraq really felt that, and Syria. And uh, I really want to also recognize Syria as well, as you know, a lot of people don't touch on Syria. Yeah. Syria is also our homeland, as in Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Iran. So that was a very uh, beautiful moment for me, and I thought it would last a little bit longer. I think it lasted 
maybe a year that we're all united. The backlash. Yeah, of course. It was amazing seeing, you know, all of our church leaders, all the different leaders, you know, uniting as Christians, not as church, you know, different sects of, of Christianity. Yeah. I don't know what happened after that. Like I said, it lasted a year. So my recharge every single time is the people in in the homeland, in Iraq and Syria. You know? So when you go annually, mm-hmm. that is your recharge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, because that shouldn't be my recharge. My recharge should be everywhere. I mean, all of my colleagues, all of the activists. You know, I'm not taking away from other activists. Absolutely not. I'm just saying as a nation in general, I, I don't understand why we are still so unbelievably divided, especially after 2014. Like I said, I thought that would be the sort of the peak of, oh, we got to get our stuff together as leaders, different leaders of different... But unfortunately, it hasn't happened, but we'll, we'll keep on pushing through. What, what is do? it about Iraq that recharges you, though? The innocence. In, in what way? Um, the innocence of... Um, I don't think they're really... I think they have this golden view of the diaspora and what we can do here and we can do it and they really believe that everyone that is here who has left the homeland and has grown and raised here can do so much which we can they have a lot of hope in us as they should because we are able to do so much more and like i said i'm not trying to bash or whatever but um we should be doing more their innocence, their resilience is what really keeps me moving forward. Who is your hero? Or if you have more than one hero, who are your heroes? Oh, God, I have a lot. <laughs> you mean like personally, professionally, nationally? There's so many. Whoever comes to your mind. Typical answer, but it's okay. My first hero is my father. Like I said, he had an amazing career, his family, very established. And because he's so umtanai and such a nationalist, um, he left everything he knew and took his daughters out of the country, but still carried on his umtanayutha, carried on his Assyrianism, which is very hard to do nowadays. It's very hard to instill Assyrianism in a foreign country. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm the youngest of three girls, and my sisters were born in Iraq, born in Basra, and they have memories of Basra. And my sisters are very established and very uh, have amazing careers. You know, my oldest sister is a doctor. My middle sister, Marianne Cannon, that you interviewed, is a CEO. And I was like, damn, how am I going to make my dad proud? I'll become an activist. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll work for this Syrian cause. Not even the most difficult <laughs> job out of all of exactly. your sisters. Exactly. So first and foremost, yes, absolutely my father. Um, sorry, mom. I mean, mom, you as well, obviously. La Kerbet, please. Watch, she's going to listen to this. Like, I know she's going to say that. But no, it, it's always looking at that, you know, Middle Eastern, it's always the man, you know, making those decisions and, and whatnot. And I know he did it for us and I know how hard it was and how hard it still is. There's still moments. I'm like, Bob, I'm 30 something years old. I'm not going to say my age. You know, you can't call me at 10 p.m. and be like, hey, kid, because I'm not, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It doesn't work like that, you know? But at the same time, I know where he's coming from and uh, I respect that and, yeah, like I mentioned before, I would never be able to do what he did and sacrifice what he sacrificed for me, my sisters, and, and yeah, my so mom. your dad being one hero. Yes. Your only hero, perhaps. Yeah. Or are there others? People that uh, you look up to. Yeah, so... That motivates you. I look up... Um, there was... 
There's a famous, very, I don't want to say famous picture, but there's a young girl uh, picture I took with her. Her actually name was Sozan. Where was the photo taken? In Nuhadra, in Dahuk. Um, when we Iraq. went, yeah, Nuhadra. we went in 2014. We were driving down the freeway and Sadiq and Sadi and I, you know, we decided to pull over. And because there was a lot of, like we talked about the makeshift tents and yeah. it was, more, it was those were the Yazidis on that side. And we said, stop, you know, let's talk to these people. Let's see what we can do for them. And there was a little girl, uh, just something about her. I just was immediately drawn to her. And I went up to her and I was like, hi, you know, she didn't speak. Uh, not that she didn't speak English. She couldn't speak at all. Because she was young or just traumatized? No, she was traumatized. Okay. So her, her sisters, her brothers, her mom, um, everyone was taken from ISIS. She was also taken from ISIS to be traded sexually and trafficked. And somehow she fled. And at that time, she was with her aunt and her cousin. You know, just on the side of the street. And her cousin was translating, like, telling me her story. And just something about her was just so... It's it's the saddest little girl I've ever seen. And I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget her. Ever, ever. And it's just... Sometimes I wonder, like, where is she now? Is she still in Iraq? Is she in a foreign country? How is she doing? Who is she living with? How is she coping She's she's my hero, and I've mentioned her in some of the awards we've won for the last play. I've mentioned her several times, actually. That's one girl I'll, I'll never forget. And I wish, I pray to God, I wish I could meet her again to let her know how much she affected me, a grown woman, how much... And she didn't speak. She had no words. She didn't but say how, anything. She didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. And I'll never forget when I hugged her in that picture, you know, she stood in front of me and I wrapped my arms around her, how fast her heart was beating. And it makes me sad till this day how, like, because she was so, she didn't know who I was, you know? Yeah. Sorry. And, you know, I was a foreigner. She just didn't, it just made me really sad. Till this day, it makes me sad. So I'm hoping one day we can connect again, but I wish she knew the impact she had on my life. I hope so too. Honestly, I hope you can meet her again. Yeah. What are your fears? Fears for, like, this, like, oh, I have a lot of fears. I would say. <laughs> You for know, the what? Syrian cause, for me I would personally, say for, uh, for any for any any fear that you're willing to share, what is that fear? I, I have a fear for our nation because I fear that everything we've gone through and keep on going through, not only are it's not that people aren't listening, it's just yeah. I, when will people listen? You know, that's my biggest fear. My fear that people are getting tired. And I mean, active not activists like our nation is getting tired, and rightfully so. There's only so much the Syrian community can support each other. There's only so much we can donate and support and mm-hmm. advocate. You know, we really need an international presence, and that's something we've been advocating for as well. Our people will not return to their home communities unless we have someone protecting us, rightfully so. That's my biggest fear, is that even though we're talking, 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 I don't know when, when someone's really going to listen. Someone being in our community listening? No. Or the outside world? Our community knows. They know. Yeah. You know what I mean, Peter? We don't need to talk about the cause and what everyone knows what's going on. We know our narrative. Yeah, exactly. But other people don't. And, and when we meet people, you know, they're so interested in our narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's what it takes. So that's why when I talked about like, oh, being an activist or being this, an activist isn't, you know, myself moving to Iraq or Gishru. Or, yeah, we're all activists. Activist is also someone who's sitting in the room tweeting. Or meeting someone at Starbucks and, and oh, where are you from? Oh, Iraq, are you this? I'm a Syrian. Oh, Syrian? No, a Syrian. 
Yeah. Even that one conversation that happens for two minutes may affect that one person who may tell someone else, hey, did you guys know these people existed? That's why for me, activism, there's not... No one is, oh, that's an amazing activist. No, everyone is an activist. Whether you're just tweeting or posting or putting pictures yeah. or talking or moving back or running a program. You everyone know what I mean? has the capability. Everyone of- has capability in their own way. In their own way. People within our community, should they hone in on what their specialty is to become that activist or just kind of take it day by day uh, in their day by activism? Day. Both. There's some specialty cases. For example, I am able to move back and you know do a reverse migration, as Sargon Sadi stated. Um, I'm able to do that. Some people aren't. Some people aren't even able to visit, which is fine. But they're so umtanaya, so like... So if you're posting, if you're talking, if you're presenting here, do it. Yeah. One's not higher than the other. Mm-hmm. In fact, as you know, I've been living in Iraq now for about nine months. I barely post on Facebook and on any social media. I should do that more. But there's activists, for example, let's say Modesto or Chicago, who are tweeting constantly or writing articles, um, whatnot. They're doing a better job than I am. Everyone has their own way. Tell us what you're currently doing in Iraq. So right now in Iraq, I am the project manager. I work for an NGO called Heartland Alliance International based out of Chicago. My donor is USAID, United States Agency for International Development. So they fund your project. Yes, they're my donor. They fund my project. And my criteria is um, survivors of extreme human rights violations. So I have a very specific criteria. A lot of the projects in Iraq don't have a criteria, but I do. And my target is the Assyrians and the Yazidis. So I work in Baghdad, aka Karakosh, uh, Sinjar, and Bashika. We have three centers. The three centers, and what we do is we help those who have returned to their communities. So in Baghdad right now, we have over 70% who have returned. People that left People when that ISIS left, came. left, and now they've returned. Very thankful to the NPU, because the NPU are the ones running those checkpoints. NPU. Nineveh Plain Protection Unit. There's the security force. Security forces, yes, yeah. API, Assyrian Policy Institute, actually released some great statistics. They said that in Baghdad, which is the checkpoints are ran by NPU, 70% plus, I don't remember that, 72, whatever, that have returned because they feel comfortable that they have NPU as the checkpoints. Mm-hmm. In Telkev and other places, like 2%, don't quote me on this, I have to find the facts, that haven't returned because they don't trust the Peshmerga or the Iraqi side. Yeah. So Peshmerga, because... Telkep is is this both a region that or a city or a town that's controlled both by the Iraqi government and mm-hmm. the KRG. Yeah. So it's a split. Exactly. And when, when we went in 2014, when we were doing the last plight, when we asked them, what is your main concern? They said security. Until this day, when I deal with returnees who have come back from the camps, they say, you guys can provide us with all the services you want. But if we don't have security, yeah. if we don't know, like... If someone's coming, and that's what happened in 2014, you know, Peshmerga abandoned their posts. They left the people to die. The Peshmerga is a Kurdish military yes. force. Yeah. So tell when, when the locals are telling you security, tell me more about security. Are they the MPU? Mm-hmm. These are essentially their neighbors that are protecting them, Christians, Assyrians mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. protecting the people that are returning. Yes. So that, that gives them their sense of security? Absolutely. Well, they run, um, besides security in general, so they secure the whole area, so they drive around whatever, but they run the checkpoints. And checkpoints in Iraq are a very big deal. 
Mm. There's some checkpoints sometimes I can't even cross. As an American, I can't cross it. I don't have the right visa. I don't have this. Even working or, for your NGO. Exactly. Even working for my NGO, they're like, it's not as if, like we don't like the way you look or whatever it is. You know, yeah. they they won't have me cross over. Mm. But with Baghdadah in particular, and, and a lot of areas in Nineveh, we have NPU. It's a checkpoint in big letters. This is NPU. And I'll cross over. I'm like, Shalom Aleichem, Dachitun. And it's like, these amazing young men wearing our gear and like, oh, shamalach tachit, pshenefelach, mutwadalach. And they still question me, which yeah. is fine. Mutwadalacha, oh, I have a, my center is here, I need to go check, blah, blah, blah. Okay, blah, blah. and that's it. But that gives the, lo- the people who have returned such a sense of like, because they know that they won't abandon them. Yeah. And that goes back to the sense of minority indigenous. As indigenous people, we have a sense of pride and love for our country. Oh, yeah. So even if it was, for example, the best Nashidian like crossing over any anybody it was, our soldiers have such a love for their country that they won't let anyone touch it. It's dedication. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, oh, sorry, back to the centers. Yeah, tell me, tell me more about your programming. Yeah, USAID is my donor. I run three centers in the areas I mentioned, and what we do is we do a wraparound service wrap or services being... wraparound. Like so, it's a collective. So what we did is we did an assessment on the ground of, okay, we have people who have returned to these communities, the Christians and Yazidis. Post-ISIS. Yeah. What do back. they need? Okay. Exactly. What do they need? We provide them with MHPSS, mental health and psychosocial support, which is very, very, very important, especially in the Syrian community because they're not willing to talk about the trauma that they've had. And there's a lot of numbers and girls Unfortunately, and, and our community doesn't know this, and the girls aren't willing to talk about it, that have been trafficked. Right now, I know of 150 Assyrian girls in Baghdad that were trafficked sexually by ISIS. In the ISIS network. Mm-hmm. But they're too embarrassed or shy to talk about it, which is a very big problem. But right now, we're, we're treating them, thank God. And then we have legal services. So for HLP, housing, land, and property, a lot of property homes were taken over Deeds were signed over, so we have lawyers representing them in the court. Their documentation, so even their residency cards were taken. They have to renew their their ID cards for them and their children. Um, we have livelihoods, which is also another thing. What they, is they, that exactly? Uh, livelihoods. Livelihoods is jobs, careers. We have a lot of businesses. Um, Economic development. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, then they they need to work. They need to make money. Mm-hmm. And we also have uh, medical. So we have primary health care and reproductive health care for the females. And we provide all these services for free, obviously, in these three areas in Nineveh for the returnees. So our target is 800, but we're affecting about 4,500, 4,500 people with what the is, families and whatnot. What are you reporting back to USAID? And can you, US, United States? Agency of International Development, yeah. So what I report back is they want to, because this money was delegated by the current administration, specifically by uh, Vice President Pence. He specifically delegated money for the minorities, which again, I hate that one, but Nicha Nicha will change it back to indigenous. Yeah, he delegated this money, realizing how important it was to reintegrate the IDPs, the minority IDPs, back into these communities. I have a weekly report, a monthly report, and a quarterly report. A lot of reporting, basically. When you work for an NGO, it's a lot of reporting. So I report numbers. I don't report specifics, no names, obviously, due to confidentiality. But I report, they want to see, listen, is what we're providing them, does it make them feel safe? Are they able to reintegrate back? Are they comfortable? Which so far with the services, they are. 
But no, the number one thing I'm flagging with USAID every single time is security. When I travel to Sinjar, it's a six-hour drive. From? So I go from Erbil. I drive to Nohadra, which is two hours away. I stay the night in Nohadra and Duhok. In the morning, I wake up at 6.30. From Duhok to Sinjar is 24 checkpoints. So you go from east to west mm-hmm. to north. Mm-hmm. So tell us, tell us what is the significance of Sinjar? Well, Sinjar and the Yazidis also play a significant role in the indigenous community of Iraq. And I mean, that is their, that's their strong, that's yes. their hometown? Yes. Okay. Sinjar and then Lalish as well, which is their holy site. And, you know, right now it's unfortunate because what, what happened in Sinjar, there's Sinjar Mountain. So when ISIS went into Sinjar, they went on top of the mountain. And right now there's still thousands of families on top of the mountain that refuse to go back into the valley of Sinjar till this day. They're just living there. They're living there with nothing. And it's very hard to get aid to them because it's so high up. But they said the only way we feel safe is we're up here and we can see what's going on around us, which is devastating for them. And it all comes back to, okay, what do you guys need for you guys to come back into your homes in Sinjar? Security. And their homes are still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Expand on your work with survivors of extreme human rights violations. The level of trauma I deal with is really on a level that no one's ever experienced. So right now we're really creating, you know, different programs and whatnot. We have a lot of international uh, technical advisors that are coming in, especially in the MHPSS mental health and psychosocial support. From all over the world. From all over the world. Right now I have a technical advisor from Australia who directly supports my project called the Safe Return Project in Inua. However, um, for my project, specifically, I have a coordinator, uh, Sandy Tarhan, who is from the Syrian community in Iraq. She's from Diana, an amazing Assyrian female who graduated uh, with a bachelor's in psychology. And she's directly, you know, assisting our case managers who are directly assisting the people that are, have trauma. And she's a national. She's not a yes. expat. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I have... My team, I have five nationals that I oversee. Meaning However, they're Iraqi. Iraqi, yes. Yeah. But I have three partners. Or not three, seven partners on the ground, but three that are running the centers. I'm glad to say that two out of my staff are Assyrians. Obviously, because of the specifics of the project, we wanted to hire specifically Assyrians and Yazidis. Anyways, luckily I got two Assyrian great uh, women. So Sani Tarhan runs the MHPSS component. The problem is the level of trauma, it's just to the point where, for example, we talked about 150 girls uh, that were trafficked by ISIS have now returned. Assyrian, Assyrian girls, yeah. yes. That were trafficked by ISIS who are going to the churches for support. Mm. And the churches reached out to me and said, there's only so much support we can give them. There is spiritual support, but we can't give them what, what they need to overcome what they went through. The trauma. The trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's a level of trauma that's, that's why I've, even the international staff is like, we've never seen this level of trauma. So it's like an ongoing learning process. Unprecedented. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have, the Yazidi community is very open about their, tra- not open about their trauma, but they, you know, a lot of people know about what's happening with the Yazidis and whatnot. Unfortunately, with the Syrians, they're a lot more um, reserved when it comes to that. And it comes to do shame. Shame is a big problem unfortunately. Um, so they're going to the churches because they know the priests and the bishops won't say what they're telling them. Mm. 
the bishop's coming up to me saying, I can't help her. There's only so much I can do. So right now, thankfully, uh, I created another position, a PSS officer, psychosocial support, that's going to work strictly in the churches. So when these, you know, women and, and girls come in, the priest will be like, okay, you told me this, now I'm going to send you to this PSS officer and sit down with her, and she's going to give you support and do a plan and figure out how we're going to help and assist you. Yeah. They also have an issue talking with locals. They feel more comfortable talking to international or other people that's not in the community. Because they, even though these they're very professional people, they don't they feel uncomfortable saying like, oh, what if they tell you know the other people in the community what we've been through? You know, there's always that fear. So that's a big, big obstacle we're trying to overcome. And and luckily, like I said, we have now a PSS officer in Baghdadda. We have two in Bashika. And we have three in Sinjar that are specifically taking people in in places of worship. So in Sinjar, it's the temples for the Yazidis. In Bashika and Karakosh, Baghdadda, we have them coming to the churches and we're rehabilitating them in the churches. So they're not embarrassed, you know, to talk about what they went through. Yeah. This job sounds very stressful, Mm -hmm. involved. Why Why would you even take on a job like this? What made you apply for a position like this in Iraq? Well, my return to Iraq was a long time coming. Doing the whole Gishu thing, it's been 10 plus years, and I really struggled with wanting to be back, and can I leave my family here? Can I live there? I was always torn about it. But after what happened with, with Daesh, with ISIS... And seeing the need in the community, I think I just sort of made that leap. You know, I'm going to actively apply. And it took me a long time. I was very specific about what I wanted. I wanted a position that I can definitely make a change, and specifically for our people. That's why, you know, I'm grateful for USAID that are specifically funding the Christians and the Yazidis. It was a very hard transition, and still is. I've been there for nine months. There's some things I'm like, sometimes I sit there I'm like what am I doing here Like, what is this but it's immediately followed up with like no I belong here this is this is what I've been wanting for a very very long time what is freedom for our people in Iraq it's a very loaded question (laughs) freedom it's all around freedom is being indigenous having rights as citizens freedom is opening a business without being threatened that you have to join a political party as in the KRG Freedom is voting, the most basic human right that we should all have, voting for whoever you want to vote for. Freedom is a female, you know, walking down the street without being accompanied by a man, you know, going to get a coffee without being harassed. Freedom is, if you are harassed, if you go to the local police department, that they'll take you seriously. Freedom is all of that. Freedom is also... Knowing that this is your, I don't want to say birthplace, yeah, your your birthright, and knowing you have rights, that's freedom. Who are our partner friends, organizations, NGOs, and maybe even foreign governments on the ground in your work capacity? For my work capacity, my well, my donor is USAID. Mm-hmm. That, like I said, right now they're very focused on the minorities still don't like that word, uh, the indigenous people. And then also we work, like I said, we work with ADM, Syrian Society, and we have other local organizations, but to be quite frank, I'm not going to lie, I, I 
local organizations and, and some churches. And I may, this may go really south really quick, but there's one thing to work with the Kurdish people, work with the KRG and work with, you know, Arabs, work with them. And there's one thing to work underneath them, to be paid by them, to be your decisions are because of them. And that's one thing I'm seeing that's very disheartening. Very disheartening. How so? Because in a day, if I want to become an engineer, but I have to, I have to sign that I, I'm going to vote for the KDP, it's a problem. And when I sign for the KDP and it's an Assyrian person saying, oh, you should do this, that's a problem. So when I sign up for the KDP, who's the KDP? The Kurdish, Demo- Kurdish Democratic Party. Hmm. Underneath the KRG. Party. Absolutely, absolutely. And, that, and that's a problem is that... I mentioned earlier we're very free there, but we're very not. Yeah, I have my apartment. There's 12-year-olds till 1 o'clock in the morning playing, going to the store, walking the streets. They won't be touched or harmed. Yeah. So there's an innocence, there's a freedom there. But at the same time, if I want to advance, not as an American Assyrian, as an Assyrian from Ankawa, for example, you have to have ties with a certain political party. And that's very unfortunate. And the only way to change that is from the diaspora. I know you as someone, and I've seen it in person, that you're someone who's very outspoken, mm-hmm. not just in the diaspora, mm-hmm. but in the homeland. Yeah. When you go there and you work in this capacity with Heartland Alliance, mm-hmm. are you still as outspoken as you are if you were a Syrian Susie living in Modesto? It becomes different. So now I see the reports, the, for example, I said I have a weekly, monthly, quarterly report to USAID. And when I'm reporting specifically for my project, specifically for our people, and I've seen the narrative that was done before me, I cannot allow that narrative to happen. So I'm trying everything in my power to be like, no, this is really what's happening on the ground. This is the oppression. This is what's, you know, our checkpoints. For example, at Ankawa right now, if you are a successful business owner as an Assyrian, if the KRG finds out, obviously they monitor all of that, they are automatically 5149 partner. 51 being them, 51%. not you. 51%. The majority owner. In terms of even profits. Oh, apps. No. Well, strictly. Yeah. Them, it's all about profits. Let's be realistic. But right now, I, I'm able to speak about it openly, and I always have. And I have, like I said, only because I'm an American. And I think they would have an issue because of my passport. But anyone else there, no, they can't. That's their livelihood. That's their family. They've been threatened. They've been driven out of their homes. They've been done. Everything's happened to them. Me, I can. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I can speak about it. Do you live in fear when you're working in Iraq? Out of your outspokenness and activism? No, which is a problem. Why? Because, you know, I know how things work there. I've seen... Uh, not seen, heard a lot of things that have happened. My parents are in constant fear. You know, sometimes I say things, I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have. No, I'm not in fear. My life is not, I'm not worth, they're worth more than me. And there's a lot of activists there that have been born and raised there that speak out more and have been threatened and been imprisoned. You know, I'm going to do that too. In your view, is Iraq a safe place to live as an American citizen? As an American citizen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we have different rights there, which is sad. From my understanding and from talking to expats, American Mm -hmm. expats, Mm -hmm. not just the Syrian, but the 
the pay range and the scales much higher for absolutely. an expat. Absolutely. Which is sad because there's a lot of talented, educated people that can have these positions in Iraq from our own community. And they, you know, choose expats. That's that's one side. But besides expats, they choose other nationals that have no ilaka or no connection to those areas. Right now, Ninawa, there's a lot of NGOs folks in Ninawa. So Ninawa being where we would call Deshtet Ninawa, yeah. the Ninawa Plains. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of international presence there. And you would think they would hire the local people. It depends on their capacity. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's a lot of people who have the education, which they won't. They won't hire them. They'll hire someone else. And there's just, you don't, you can't do that. There's no, and that's why I think there's always going to be turmoil. There's always going to be results that aren't clear. There's always like facts that, you know, just don't make sense because. What's coming out from. From Ninoa, from the people who have returned, especially the people who have returned. Uh, we need the, the hardcore facts. What are they scared of? When you have people who have been displaced for so many years that come back and say, we feel safe because this is happening. NPU is here. And the government's not listening. It's a really big problem. Mistrust. Absolutely. I'm an Assyrian that's living in the diaspora. Like Peter Ibrahim lives in the diaspora. Yes. Has aspirations perhaps to one day move back to Iraq and work in a similar capacity as you. Mm-hmm. As we try to mobilize our community and the diaspora, is our should our focus be in the diaspora to mobilize or in the homeland? Uh, that's From- a that's a very good question, because both question both are right. We should definitely mobilize in the diaspora because that is what is needed in the homeland. And when we mobilize, neither neither one exists without the other. And I think that's what's really important that people, I'm not saying people don't realize, but people don't focus on. Yeah. Right now, what's going on in the Middle East, we cannot be advocates if we have no audience in the diaspora. This past year, I met with a principal from Ishtar School in Nuhadra, mm-hmm. in northern Iraq. When I met with him to propose a project or pick his brain about a project, <clears throat> he started off with, Rabai wa Mm-hmm. How long will you keep giving money in the form of aid to us? Because this is the duty of the government. Absolutely. Of the Department of Education. And so this really struck a chord with me because these are people that aren't looking for handouts. Absolutely. They're, yeah. looking, they're calling on, actively calling on their mm-hmm. government to provide them with the basic tenants of what a government should provide them yeah absolutely and that's where our role comes in you know it's not like how you said it's not about fundraising it's not about money so right now what we need to do is we need to advocate like i mentioned earlier there's nothing too small or big when it comes to like advocacy or activism it's um all across the board so someone who is tweeting to someone who's on the ground working for me it's all the same all the same. And that's what they say. We need international presence. We need that when you guys come see what's going on in Iraq and Syria to go back out and talk about it because that's what's lacking is, yes, there's definite, definite corruption, as we all know, definite oppression from the KRG. It's not something that's, you know, that we don't know about. And we really, really need to make sure that, I don't want to say that has changed. I mean, that, that's, that the government's noticed that that support to the KRG doesn't arrive so quickly. 
And yes, do we have, you know, Assyrians that work for the KRG? Um, religious figures that work with the KRG? Absolutely. And I know sometimes, you know, I spoke with someone who now directly works and is funded by the KRG, and he's like, you know, even skinta matal girma, what can you do? And I said, get rid of that limb. We have listeners from all over the world. What is one thing that you would like to tell them to impart to them? Well, there's a lot of things I can say, but <laughs> there's only so much time. I used to be a Syrian extremist, extremist, Meaning. which anything, anything extreme is very dangerous. So I used to be that girl. You know what? We're going to have a Syria. We're going to have our own country. We're going to have this. And it's written in the... No, 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 no. Reality hit me. In 2008, when I started going, I, I was still an extremist. And don't get me wrong. I still extreme when it comes to our rights. To the Facebook gangbangers that are sitting in different countries, all they do is post and, and talk negatively about what's going on in, in the homeland. First and foremost, shame on you. Major shame on you because you have no right. You have no right to talk about our people's rights in the in our homeland if you've you don't have no ilaqa there no connection realistically and i know this is harsh will we ever have like an autonomous like no, not autonomous are a country of our own no and i want to make that very clear to everybody it's very hard in general it's very hard do we want in a region that's governed by our people absolutely that can happen so we really need to make that distinction between Oh, Assyria, Bremo, Autorite. No, that, that's not going to happen. We'll, we'll never have a country, at least in the next 50 years, that's called Assyria in the Middle East. So we really got, got to get rid of that. And once we get rid of that, that's when we can really start working and moving forward. This is what we have now. We have an education system. We have political movement, movements, humanitarian movements. We have security. We have everything to create this autonomous region. All we need is the support from international and not international governments are people in diaspora stop sending me messages oh Susie, you know i'm gonna pick up an ak-47 and go fight in iraq i'm gonna kill no it's not that's it doesn't work like that yeah you know what i mean that's not it's not like that you know pick up a book don't pick up a gun first and foremost really advocate on the right way that's my my main message is that i'm not trying to shoot down any dreams or hopes no I but think it's better for us actually i think you're correct in that way when I was in Iraq, I met local folks who said that Zonet Plasha Kutasha Prikala, like the time we're not in the age of fighting. Exactly. It's more so the generation of intelligence. Absolutely. Absolutely. But intertwined with like security. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, you know, advocate and do all this stuff. At the same time, I want a soldier. I feel more safe with our soldiers around. Mm-hmm. So please support and this is actually the last message for those who cannot go back to the homeland which is fine listen to the people who have gone or listen to the people there do not listen to people outside in sweden or lebanon or canada who are talking endlessly about how we should how we should be in our motherland they have no connection no ilaqa at all it's very easy for them to sit and drink tea or sit and do conferences or do parliaments for that's that's nothing to do with anything. Sit and listen to the people there. They're the ones that are surviving and existing. So up until we listen to them and advocate for them, that's the only way that, that we will move forward, to be honest. 
Well, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your R&R, your rest and <laughs> relaxation. I know you're visiting here. You're visiting California from your strenuous job in Iraq. But thank you. thank you for making the time, Susie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. I was very nervous. Thank you for easing me into this interview. I loved it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, I have a favor to ask before we close out. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received on the podcast thus far. If you could take a minute after this to rate and review us wherever you listen to us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.